for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Thank you, Ryan, for that introduction. For you, Civil War buffs, historians, and fans, you're in for a great treat today. I'm going to be interviewing Laura Bullock, the director of the Sherman House and Museum in Lancaster, Ohio, the birthplace of General William Tecumseh Sherman and Senator John Sherman. During this interview, Laura is going to share some great information about the Sherman family, and at the end of the episode, also about a wonderful Civil War symposium that's going to be happening September 27th and 28th, and information will be posted in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to episode six of the Outstanding Ohioans podcast, hosted by Ron Silico. I've got the pleasure today to be talking with Laura Bullock, who is the director of the Sherman House and Museum in Lancaster, Ohio, which is the birthplace of General William Tecumseh Sherman and Senator John Sherman, among other many other siblings and relatives, a very well-known family in the history of Ohio. And Laura, could you tell us briefly about yourself first? Well, to begin with, I'm a retired teacher, and after retiring from teacher teaching, they, I knew I had to have something else to do, so I started volunteering at the Sherman House, and then one thing led to another, and pretty soon I was the director. Okay. And so how long have you been in that role? Uh, since 2000. Okay. Okay. And how long has the Sherman House and Museum been a place for visitors? Since uh, 1949, there were two owners between the time that the Sherman family lived there and when it became a, a museum. Okay, great. What's what's the history of the Sherman family in Ohio? Um, well, first of all, the Sherman family came here from England in 16 in the 1630s. Uh, they settled mainly in Connecticut, and then in 1810, uh, General Sherman's father, Charles Sherman, came to Ohio to claim land that his that was given to his father um, for participation in the Revolutionary War. Since the Indian Wars were going on, the War of 1812, um, he moved further south and stumbled upon Lancaster and decided this was a great place to live. So um, they settled here, he and his wife and his first child in 1811. Okay. And very large family. Can you go into the background of that? Yes, they came here with one child, eventually had 11 children, and all of the 11 children grew to be successful adults, which was an amazing feat during the early 1800s. Um, they, they were, you know, the, the boys in the family did well financially and in business, and of course the general in, in, um, in the military, and John in politics. Um, the girls all married very successfully. Okay. So the father, can you talk a little bit about the father and the mother, what they did professionally and, and what their philosophy was with raising their family? Yeah. Um, Charles Taylor Sherman was the father. 
He was an Ohio Supreme Court judge. He was also a sixth-generation lawyer. Um, he came here to Lancaster and opened a, a law practice, and um, then in 1824 was chosen to be an Ohio Supreme Court judge. Um, as a judge during that time period, he wrote a circuit and held court in different places around the state. And on one of those trips in 1829, he contracted um, typhoid and died very quickly, or very suddenly, I should say. Um, that left um, his wife, Mary Hoyt Sherman, with 11 children to raise. Now, Mary herself was, um, was a graduate of a finishing school, Poughkeepsie Finishing, or excuse me, Sketchling Finishing School in Poughkeepsie, New York. And so they were considered an extremely well-educated family for the time being, for that time period. And they really stressed education for their children. Okay. And, and you kind of alluded to it, uh, the fact that the Senator John Sherman uh, had a very well-known political career, and of course, General William Tecumseh Sherman. Can you speak to a little bit about what the other siblings did before we shift the focus to the senator and the general? Well, one of the boys went into the printing business in Cincinnati. Hoyt Sherman uh, settled in uh, Iowa and became a banker and uh, real estate um, kind of tycoon, and also was um, he was the head of the Sherman Insurance Company, and I'm not saying that that name's not exactly right, but um, anyway, he was credited with saving the life insurance company because he he uh, kind of enabled it so that any home that was sold, um, the people had to have a life insurance policy to go along with that. Um, let's see. I'm, I don't know what else you would like to know here. Does that kind of give you a feel for it? Yeah, it sure does. Okay. Uh, you, you alluded to the to the death of the father. How, how old was the general at the time of his passing? He was nine years old. Uh, General Sherman, or Comp, as he was uh, called all of his life, that was his nickname, was uh, born in 1820, and his father died in 1829. And like I said, that left um, Mary, the, the mother in the family, uh, with 11 children. And she simply did not have enough money to, um, to take care of all the children. Um, so some of them were sent away. The older ones were sent to live with friends and relatives. Um, um, Comp or the general was the only one who went was sent to live with a friend. The rest of them lived with relatives. However, he lived with uh, Thomas Ewing, who lived right next door. And Thomas Ewing was a U.S. senator and a very, very dear friend of Charles Sherman's. I know it, it was mentioned in, in any biographies about General Sherman that Senator Ewing was a profound influence on his life, even even regarding getting his appointment into West Point. Can you speak a little bit about his influence? Absolutely. He was a great influence. Um, um, Cup 
himself had mixed emotions. He admired and respected Thomas Ewing. He he really, really appreciated everything that he had done for him. However, he did not want to be under Thomas Ewing's control. So he wanted to be his own person. He wanted to uh, make his own way in life. And so that was a bit of, of a conflict between the two of them because um, Thomas Ewing uh, would have been very, very happy if Kump had come back to Lancaster and um, headed one of his companies, but Kump didn't want to do that. So, and uh, but like I said, he was a great, a great influence on his life. And even during the Civil War, he still felt it was important to impress Thomas Ewing. Hmm. Now, now you mentioned that. The, the siblings were sent in a variety of directions. Did 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 the mother still stay in Lancaster in the same house, and did any of the siblings remain with her? She did. She stayed there, uh, and um, all the younger children uh, stayed with her. Uh, I think the five younger ones stayed with her there at the house. And then with Comp just going right next door, he could visit, you know, pretty much daily. He had been great friends with the Ewing children. So, um, you know, it wasn't a big move for him. However, it was a very, very dramatic experience in his life because he'd gone from being the child of a pillar in the community to being a foster child. And I, I think that that affected him probably for the rest of his life. Hmm. Okay. And what is the age difference between the general and the senator? They're about two and a half years. The senator, John Sherman, is um, the younger of the two. Um, Kump was born in 1820, um, and John was born in 1823. Okay. And, and where did John Sherman... Did he stay in Lancaster, or did he did he move when the father passed? Uh, in 1829, he moved. He went to um, he went to not Marion, but um, I can't say the name of the city. I'm sorry, Mount Vernon. Okay. And uh, and stayed there for a short time. Then he came home, lived with his mother um, for another few years, and then went to Mansfield. And um, he had an uncle, his mother's uh, brother in Mansfield, and then um, that's where he settled and spent the rest of his life. Okay. Okay. So General Sherman's nine years old. His father passes away. He goes to, to live with Thomas Ewing. What, as a, as a, a young child, what, what were some of General's interests and what, what, directed him to going into going into West Point? Well, you know, he was a typical everyday child. They they talked about, you know, playing ball on the field, uh, uh, sledding on the hill, uh, you know, kind of doing ornery childhood things. Um, they, uh, Thomas Ewing had a farm. They loved to go to the farm and explore and, and, um, and, and, and worked on the farm. Um, he and his brother both worked on the uh, lateral canal um, from, you know, in the, the, the canal system here in Ohio. And um, let's see, um, you know, as, as, um, as a matter of fact, Lancaster, for being a wild frontier town at that time period, 
had a had an excellent school, so um, they the the kids got a good education, and they um, then Thomas Ewing told Come, you know, bone up on whatever you need to bone up on because I'm going to send you to West Point, and obviously that was a, a marvelous thing for him to do, but it was also a free college education. Okay. So he goes to West Point. What? How did he do at West Point? He did extremely well at West Point. He was. Um, he actually had the grades to be fourth in his class. Uh, however, he had a few demerits, so that dropped him down to sixth. Um, he he had learned from growing up here in Ohio that, or at least this is what he says anyway, that what is inside a person is more important than the way a person looks. So he sometimes got demerits for not, um, you know, having his shoes polished, not, you know, not being properly attired, um, not being in at curfew time, those sorts of things. Okay. So then he graduates from West Point. How did yeah. his military career progress? He uh, started out, uh, he, he was in um, several locations, mainly in the South to begin with. Um, he was in Florida for the ending of the Seminole Wars. Um, he um, then went to, during the uh, war with Mexico, went to California in um, 1849. He was actually, he was the person who um, examined the ore that, you know, let the United States know that there was a gold rush in California. He sent word to um, uh, President Polk that, you know, they had discovered gold in, and, um, in 1849. Then, after about 10 years, with the um, probably urging of both Thomas Ewing and his wife, Ellen Ewing, um, he uh, resigned from the military and then tried a little bit of banking, also in California, um, the law for just a very short time, and then became the very first um, first superintendent or president of what is now Louisiana State University. Okay. And he, he's in that job, and is, that, is, that, is it at that point that the Civil War breaks out? Absolutely, yes. He said that, you know, if they, if Louisiana seceded from the Union, he would have to leave the job. And so when they seceded, that's exactly what he did. Um, he resigned and came north and, uh, you know, then after a certain period of time, re-enlisted in the um, Army. Okay. What, what, was his, what was his motivation with re-enlisting in the Army, and how did he assume a leadership role? Well, he felt that there was nothing more important than the Union. Um, and he, both Thomas Ewing and his father had taught him that. The Union, the, um, you know, that was, that was ultimate. And the Constitution said, you know, we are united, we're one. And so he believed in, uh, as, as long as there was a fragment of the Constitution, he was going to try to uphold it. 
Okay. So he enter, he enters the military. Where does he get assigned? Um, originally, well, shoot, I don't know exactly. Um, originally, um, he he. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I sort of lost that. Okay. Now, it seemed like he might have started out in the West, in Tennessee. He, oh, well, yeah, he was yeah. always in the West. I mean, he was he was under McClellan uh, for the first Battle of Bull Run. Um, he did very well there. Um, as a matter of fact, he and, I don't know, quite a few others um, were promoted because of, of what had happened there at the Battle of First, uh, first Bull Run. And then... Yeah, like like you said, he spent the re- all of his time in the West after that. Okay. And at at what point did he have his friendship begin and develop with Ulysses S. Grant? Um, that would probably have been um, just shortly before Shiloh. Um, my my Civil War history is not as good as uh, it should be. But uh, they worked together very closely at Shiloh, and I think that um, before that, they had had a passing relationship, and uh, Cump had been a um, oh um, um, an officer that made sure all the materials and supplies were available to the to um, you know whichever army wherever they were needed, and Grant realized that he was an extremely well organized person and somebody that he wanted to get acquainted with. So he brought him in and they they fought the Battle of Shiloh and then of course they planned the Battle of Vicksburg together. Okay. To that point, if you could expand on it, what, what were his characteristics that made him such an effective general? He was um, very he, he was well organized he was um, very detail-oriented. Um, he wanted everything to be ordered. You know, everything had to, everything was supposed to have a place and everything was supposed to have an order, and he was determined that that was going to happen. Um, he was also passionate about his soldiers, and I think also uh, being from Ohio um, made him feel more like one of the guys, Um, and he was one of the very few generals that were able to, that was able to learn from his soldiers. They learned from him, he learned from them. Uh, When, you know, when they said, you know, standing in a row and shooting at the other guys is not working, you know, we need to try something else, he said, okay, let's try something else, you know, and so he told them, it's okay to hide behind trees, it's okay to, you know, to put a rock in front of you so that, you know, to protect yourself. He was he was passionate about his soldiers and pretty much passionate about order. Okay. Yeah. I think what people know him for the most from a military standpoint is his march to the sea. What was his philosophy in developing that strategy? Well, again, as I said, he was passionate about his soldiers, so he didn't want to get them shot. He kept doing flanking motions um, instead of 
instead of doing battle head-on. You know, that's the way, the head-on battle is the way most wars have been fought all over the world to that point in time. But technology had caught up, and so, you know, with, with rifling and that sort of thing for the guns, um, you know, were safer and more beneficial, and he, you know, he just simply followed where Joe Johnston led him. Okay. Okay. Uh, what was his? He he developed a lot of strategies that you just spoke about that have been studied by generations of officers in the army since then. But what was his personal view of war? It, it, I don't believe he liked it. He hated war. He he said it was sometimes in situations like this it was a necessary evil. But he really, he, yeah, he hated it. Okay. So the Civil War ends. Where does his military career progress from that point? Well, then he's, um, he is the general of all the armies in the West, everything west of the Mississippi. So he was um, very much involved in uh, protecting the, the workers for the railroad to make sure that the railroads, um, you know, were built east and west. Uh, he was also in charge of Indian affairs at that point in time. Um, then when uh, Grant became president, um, Sherman was uh, general of, of all the Army, and um, then that was the job he had until, um, uh, until he retired. Okay. And what year would he have retired, and what did he do for the, for the rest of his life? retirement and I have to do the math very quickly to figure out what year that was but um, then he um, you know he maintained a very very active schedule he and his wife after a certain length you know after living in um, St. Louis for a certain length of time um, moved to New York City he, he loved the theater he just you know, and so he would often go to the theater two, three times a week. He kept an extremely busy speaking schedule. Um, he traveled all over the country, basically, to speak at GAR conventions and uh, encampments. And again, this this goes back to his passion for his for the soldiers. Um, he worked pretty hard to um, make sure that veterans got their uh, benefits that. Uh, Orphans and widows also received benefits. So um, he stayed very, very busy uh, um, and active with a social life and a speaking uh, life. As a matter of fact, they say that Sherman and uh, Mark Twain were the two most sought-after dinner speakers uh, during that time period. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He, there was a, he expressed a strong distaste from politics and, and being involved in it, and I'm sure you could speak to the famous quote he had about when he was asked about being president. Can you, yeah. can you share what, why he had such a distaste for politics? He, uh, he had been raised around politics, and he realized that, you know, politi poli poli excuse me, politics 
I'm, you know, sometimes very dangerous and very hurtful. And again, he expected that orderly kind of progression. And, you know, if, if a person gives an order, he expects it to be followed. That didn't happen in politics. He couldn't quite, you know, so he, he couldn't, you know, he, he just couldn't gel with that. Um, you know, he, he did say his famous quote was, uh, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. He also said that um, if he had to choose between four years in the White House and four years in the penitentiary, he'd choose the latter. <laughs> I, I love that story. Yeah. Could, could you speak? He was, he, as a matter of fact, he was very, very upset when Grant um, chose to run for the presidency. Hmm. He felt that, um, you know, that uh, Washington politics would eat him alive, and he, he didn't want that for his friend. Hmm. You know, because of his role in the Civil War, he got to interact with the person who's widely regarded as America's most popular president, Abraham Lincoln. What what were his feelings towards President Lincoln? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. They only met five times. The first time, um, John Sherman, his brother, introduced them and uh, come, had just come from being, you know, living in the South. And he told Lincoln that, uh, you know, the South is ready for war. They're ready to fight. And Lincoln's famous comment was, well, I think we'll be able to keep house. And so Sherman was furious with him. He thought he was crazy, you know, because he realized what the South was doing to get ready for the war, and the North wasn't taking it seriously. And then each time he met Lincoln after that, his respect and admiration grew until he, he thought he was just, you know, the best leader that the country had ever had. So General Sherman retires. He's very active in the speaking circuit. From from the time he went to West Point, how often did he come back to Ohio? Um, when the um, when the Ewings were still living, when Thomas and his wife Maria were still living, um, he he came back semi regularly. His wife Ellen was the oldest daughter of the Ewings. And so, of course, she wanted to come back and visit her family. And they had a very, very tight grip on her. And um, as a matter of fact, Sherman realized that um, Thomas Ewing would always be first in Ellen's heart, not, not he or her husband. <laughs> uh, but um, then after they, um, after Thomas and Maria passed away, he came back very seldom. Okay. All right. So if we could shift gears now to the senator. So John Sherman's two and a half years younger than Trump. What's his, yes. how's his life journey progress? Um, well, he felt, um, 
Those two pieces of legislation that are always linked with him is is the Antitrust Act and the Silver Act. What yeah. what drove him to want to get those pieces of legislation in place? Well, you, uh, you know, um, I can't really say for sure, but I think the fact that his father died when he was very young affected both he and Comp, and his father died. With, with a tremendous amount of debt, and that's that's what separated their family. That's what destroyed their family. So he was very strict about making sure that there was a budget that you know people had enough money to take care of themselves. That and, and with the monopolies that were you know being developed at that point in time, the workers simply couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And what what was the relationship like between Comp and John? They were really close. They were the closest uh, of all the siblings. They were the two closest. Okay. And it it sounds like from what you said earlier that uh, John might have had some impact with introducing his brother into the circles of Washington. Yeah, I think he had a lot of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, impact on, on Kump in many ways. You know, um, Kump sen- seemed to, uh, if a thought went through his head, it tended to come out of his mouth, whereas John was way more subtle, and he'd, you know, try to get his brother to, to back off periodically. And then, like you said, he did introduce him to Lincoln. Um, he was he was the uh, the politician in the family in in many ways. So, okay. yeah, he definitely introduced him to the Washington circle. Okay. 
Okay, if we could shift gears to the museum now, what, again, if you could remind the audience of when, when the museum opened and, and what, what did the community of Lancaster do to, to make this a reality? Well, in, in 1949, when it first became a museum, it was donated to the city of Lancaster. Um, they discovered that they absolutely didn't have enough money to maintain it, so they deeded it over to the state of Ohio. And the state of Ohio had it until um, the, the late 1970s. And at that point, it had been mothballed for several years. And so the Fairfield Heritage Association took it over in 1980 and then reopened it in 82. Um, the Fairfield Heritage Association is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. So, you know, we, we um, work really hard to pay all of our bills and to, you know, to make ends meet providing our own money because we don't get any tax support. Um, the, the museum is open every day except Monday from 12 to 4, um, and we were open from the 1st of April to um, the weekend before thank, or the weekend before Christmas, excuse me. And then during those those um, three months that were closed, uh, people can get tours by calling the, the Fairfield Heritage Office and, and just planning. Okay. You know, I, what I, when I was looking at your website, I was fascinated by the amount of activities and opportunities available to visitors. Can you speak yeah. a little bit about what a visitor can expect when they come to the museum? Well, the museum, I, I, I love the museum because when you go into it, not only are you seeing the birthplace of, uh, you know, one of the most prominent uh, Americans in history, but you see three distinct uh, different time periods. When you first walk in, you walk into a, an 1870s, 80s Victorian parlor, which is furnished completely with, with furnishings that belong to the general and his wife, Ellen. And then as you move it back through the house, you go into what the house looked like when he was a child in the 1820s. So you've got two distinct time periods there. And then as you go into the Civil War exhibit, we have a marvelous Civil War exhibit, a tent room, and um, a GAR exhibit. And so that takes you into the 1860s. And uh, so it's, it's just, um, it, it, you know, you get a lot out of a visit to the museum. Okay. Uh, besides a tour through the museum, what other programming is available for guests? We have, well, we have uh, uh, events going on. The Fairfield Heritage Association, not just the Sherman House, has events probably uh, um, nine out of the 12 months of the year. Uh, we're really excited right now about our Civil War Symposium, which is coming up on September 27th and 28th. And we have some of the most outstanding speakers um, in the country um, that'll, be, that'll be talking to our guests. Um, John Marzalak is probably the leading expert right now on um, General Sherman, and he's from Mississippi State University. 
Uh, Frank Williams is a retired Chief Justice of the uh, Rhode Island Supreme Court, and he's one of the leading experts on Abraham Lincoln. Mark Grimsley is from our own Ohio State University, and he is, um, uh, you know, he, he teaches military history with an emphasis on the Civil War, and he maintains a couple um, history-related blogs, which are very interesting. Okay. Um, Chris Evans is from Newark. He's a scholar, a, a an outstanding speaker, and he he's going to talk to us about um, the the reunion, the eight, the nineteen eighteen reunion between the the Union soldiers and the Confederate soldiers, and then also we'll have um, our first talk is about the. Um, uh, the milestones that lead up to the war. So this is almost like a timeline, this uh, symposium. We start with the milestones that lead up to the war, then we go to Sherman's March, and then from there to the re-election of Abraham Lincoln, and then Mark Grimsley will talk about Reconstruction, and Chris does the 1813, uh, re or excuse me, 1913 reunion. We also have that the symposium includes tours of um, the Sherman House, the Georgian, the Decorative Arts Center of Ohio, and Rock Mill, um, which is one of our historic parks. Okay. Well, well, we'll put all this information in the show notes, Laura, because I think I think listeners that have an interest in Ohio history and Civil War history will be very interested in that if they don't know about that already. That would be wonderful. Each year, how many visitors come to the museum? Oh, my goodness. Um, probably an average of 6,000. Okay. okay. And that doesn't include the special events. Okay. Last question before we give you a chance to, to share the contact information. Why is General Sherman important to the legacy of Ohio? What should people know about him and continue to learn? Well, uh, you know, people say that he's the father of modern warfare. Um, whether that's true or it isn't, I don't know. But he was a, a true, true patriot. He loved his country. He, he stood up for the people of his country. Um, he... Uh, you know, I feel like he and Grant and Lincoln are the three main people who made this country what it is today. Yeah, that's, that's a great legacy and a great statement. How, If people want to get more information, Laura, about the museum, what do, what would be phone numbers, email, and websites that they could get that? Uh, the website is simply shermanhouse.org. And our phone number is 740-654-9923. Okay. Is there an email address? There is an email address. And um, it's, what is it, Fair, um, Fairfield, well, yeah, Fairfield Heritage um, at sbcglobal.net. Okay, great. Well, Laura, thank you for taking the time to visit with our audience today on the Sherman House and Museum in Lancaster, Ohio. 
Well, thank you so much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Episode 6 of the Outstanding Ohioans Podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. Wow, thank you for listening. I love that interview. Again, just so many historical things that have happened in the history of Ohio and amazing historical figures that had a profound impact on the history of the United States. Please refer to the show notes for information about the House Museum and events that take place in in Lancaster County and the Fairfield Heritage Museum. That's part of Fairfield County. Please take the time, however you're listening to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your device, and rate the show and give feedback and input what you like, what we what you would like to see, what guests you might like to hear. Once again, thank you for listening. You guys make the show great.